0: Hey, welcome back. This is Never To Be Seen Again, the podcast, and I am Laura. We are at episode 14 now, and last week we took the big trip to the Big Apple as we talked about a multitude of cases. This week, we are traveling all the way west and headed to Oregon. Now, I told y'all that I was going to try and slow things down this week, but I still ended up with six cases to talk about. Half of those cases this week are... Uh, child disappearances. I always like to warn you about that beforehand because I know that uh, child disappearances are a little harder to hear about for some people. But I will start off this week with the disappearance of a adult and I'll start with the disappearance of Mark Jeffrey Driven He is case number 3847, DMOR in the Doe Network, and case number MP867 in NamUs. And he also uh, is on the Charlie Project. All of the cases this week are on the Charlie Project, uh, so I won't mention them for every case. Mark is a white male with a bald head, and green or hazel colored eyes. He was born on April 13th of 1957 and he was 42 at the time of his disappearance. He will be 63 here in a few days. He stood at 5 foot 6 and weighed 160 pounds and at the time of his disappearance he had a mustache and a small goatee. Mark lived alone in a home in the 3000 block of Northeast 137th Avenue in Portland, Oregon in 1999. He worked for United Airlines at Portland International Airport. By all accounts, Mark was a very responsible worker and not known to miss shifts. He was also not known to disappear for any period of time. Mark was also very close to his parents and brother and stayed in regular contact with them. On Friday, July 2nd, 1999, Mark called his employer and requested the night off saying he had a personal emergency some accounts say this was the last time he was ever heard from some accounts say however that he was seen at the eagle tavern on southwest 13th avenue and burnside street on july 3rd monday july 5th was a holiday due to independence day so most workers had the day off um, Uh, On Tuesday, July 6th, however, there was cause for alarm um, because Mark didn't show up for work. A friend reported Mark missing on that Tuesday, but his employer had also called the police for a welfare check because Mark had failed to show up for work that day and that was not normal for Mark. Investigators go to Mark's home where they discover that numerous items were missing from his house his vehicle was also gone. About two weeks later, Mark's vehicle was found abandoned. It was found near Southeast 43rd Avenue and Division Street in Portland, which was an area that Mark did not usually frequent. No traces of Mark were found at that scene. Based on Mark's extended absence, His sterling work record, the lack of contact with his family, and what they discovered in his house, investigators became concerned um, about Mark's disappearance, believing that something sinister had happened. Authorities say they believe that Mark had been murdered inside his home between July 2nd and July 6th. They say they found substantial forensic evidence indicating a homicide had taken place there. There were blood splatters all over the walls, and an indication that someone had tried to clean up. They also theorized that the vehicle was stolen from his home after his murder and was abandoned where it was later located. So, of course, Mark's body has never been found because I wouldn't be telling you about him if he had been. I could find no mention of possible suspects in Mark's disappearance and probable murder. But that doesn't mean that, they, that investigators don't have any. Mark's case is open, although it is cold, and no arrests have ever been made. Uh, so, if you have any information about Mark's disappearance, please contact Portland Police Department, uh, Crime Stoppers of Oregon, or you can submit an anonymous tip online using the P3Tip app. Let's get Mark's case solved now we'll talk about the first juvenile case that i'll cover this week this is the case of anne marie ellenwood anne is case number 2522 dfor in the doe network and case number mp8105 in namus her nc mec number is 1167249 so anne is a white female with red hair brown eyes and freckles she was born on May 1st of 1965 and was 12 at the time of her disappearance. She stood at 5 foot 2 and 95 pounds back then. Today she would be 54. On April 15th of 1978, sweet little Anne was participating in the March of Dimes Walkathon in Corvallis, Oregon. The route for the walkathon was on a bike path along the Marys River. At about 1 p.m., Anne told her friends that she was walking with that her feet were hurting and that they should go on without her. Anne said that she would meet up with them at the checkpoint at the the Gill Coliseum. Anne was last seen near the Pioneer Park ball field across Highway 43 from the Coliseum. Anne was never to be seen again. That afternoon, she had a paper delivery route, but she never showed up, which was uncharacteristic of her. When Anne never came home, her parents reported her missing at 5.15 p.m. A search of the area turned up no signs of Anne. But what they did find was a girl who was also participating in the walkathon. The girl had been approached by a man with a maroon Ford pickup truck with a small white camper trailer. The man asked her to watch his small dog. The man then opened the door to the trailer and told the girl to put the dog in the trailer. Instead of stepping into the trailer, the girl tossed the dog in and walked away. Possibly moments after that interaction, interaction, a witness said they saw a girl matching Ann's description, talking with a man with a small dog next to a maroon pickup and a camper trailer. They overheard the man telling the girl he was the chief of police. Within minutes, the girl, the man, and the truck with the camper were gone. Four days later, on April 19th, 11-year-old Stephanie Ann Newsom disappeared from West Salem, Oregon. Stephanie was similar in age and appearance to Ann, and like Ann, Stephanie was last seen walking alone during the daytime. Stephanie was walking door-to-door near Walker Middle School delivering ad- advertisements. Witnesses saw Stephanie walking home empty-handed by way of the trail just east of the school. Another witness later looked over as an off-white sedan with loud exhaust passed by. He recognized the girl in the passenger seat as Stephanie Ann Newsom. Because of the similarities in Anne and Stephanie's case, police very quickly linked the disappearances. In Corvallis, the Benton County District Attorney's Office um, released a description of the pickup truck, camper trailer, and driver seen by the witnesses the day Anne disappeared. They described the man as Caucasian with a stocky build, reddish brown or sandy colored hair, a gruff voice, and possibly a mustache. The suspect in Stephanie's case had a similar description, stocky in his late 20s and had shaggy light brown hair. On April 25th, Stephanie's partially clothed body was found in a field next to Anaki Wildlife Refuge. She had been dead for several days. Investigators determined that she had been raped and strangled. Fortunately, when the description was released, people began calling in almost immediately. The description matched a 42-year-old man by the name of Earl Fred Woody Chambers. Chambers was a convicted sex offender, had long strawberry blonde hair and a thick mustache. He worked in Wilmanette Valley as a roofer. Two friends of Chambers even reported that he had told them that he had been in Pioneer Park with his truck trailer and dog at the time of Anne's disappearance. By May, Chambers was named a suspect in the case of Anne and Stephanie. Less than two weeks after Anne and Stephanie disappeared Stephanie's disappearance, people who knew Chambers said that they barely recognized him. He was suddenly clean-shaven, and his hair was short and dark. Chambers had stopped driving his red Ford pickup and had begun driving his off-white 1970 Ford Torino. The Torino had a body style very similar to the one Stephanie was last seen in. On May 7th, Chambers had left his truck at a car dealership to be sold on consignment. Police did bring him uh, in for questioning about Ann's disappearance, but of course he denied any involvement he was ordered to appear before a grand jury on June 6th. June 6th quickly came. On that afternoon, instead of standing before a grand jury, police found Chambers' body in a rural area in Lynn County, Oregon. He had committed suicide. He didn't even leave a note. After Chambers' death, the investigation went cold. Law enforcement still makes periodical efforts to resolve Ann's disappearance and Stephanie's murder. In 2005, a hair found in Chambers' trailer and vehicle believed to be Ann's was tested for DNA. Unfortunately, though, the results were inconclusive. Then along came retired Salem Police Sergeant James J.R. Miller. J.R. volunteers his time as an investigator working on cold cases for the Salem Police Department. He took on Anne and Stephanie's cases. He poured over countless police reports, photographs and newspaper accounts of the crimes. J.R. found something that everyone else hadn't though. He found an article that appeared in the June 8, 1978 edition of the Oregon Statesman's newspaper. In the article, the then Marion County District Attorney Gary Gortmaker announced that two Salem attorneys had appeared before Judge Richard Barber to obtain the court's permission to disclose information about a former client who had recently deceased. The DA said that the information disclosed would result in him convening a Marion County Grand Jury investigation into the disappearances of Stephanie and Ann. Keep in mind, this article was published only two days after Chambers killed himself." So good old JR contacted one of the attorneys mentioned in the article. He was able to confirm that Chambers had asked those two attorneys to represent him because he was under subpoena to testify before the Benton County Grand Jury concerning Ann's disappearance. As a result of their meeting, the attorneys learned that he was responsible for Ann's disappearance. Unfortunately, there are no reports that the Marion County D.A. Gortmaker ever told the police or the Benton County D.A.'s office about the information he had learned concerning Chambers. The Marion County grand jury investigation into the disappearance of Stephanie and Ann never occurred. So, in case you just got a little confused, uh, let me try and clear it up. Anne disappeared from Corvallis, which is in Benton, Benton County. Stephanie disappeared from Salem, disappeared from Salem, which is in Marion County. Essentially, what occurred is Marion County found out from those two attorneys that Chambers was guilty. That information was most likely never provided to Benton County, where Anne was still missing. Not that much of that matters anymore because the man responsible is dead and can't face charges. So beyond that, J.R. contacted the now-grown woman that didn't fall victim to Chambers, the once young girl who Chambers had asked to place the dog in the trailer, but instead she tossed it in and ran away. J.R. showed her photographs of Chambers with long hair and sitting in his uh, pickup truck, and she immediately recognized him. Back in 1978, she was shown photographs to identify someone, but she didn't recognize anyone. It was discovered that she was shown a photograph of Chambers after he had changed his appearance, and that is why she didn't recognize him. JR is completely convinced that Chambers is responsible for Anne's disappearance and Stephanie's disappearance and murder. But he says that he will not be satisfied until Anne's remains are found and Stephanie's case can be proven beyond a reasonable. I'm sorry. Um, until Stephanie's case can be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Any information in regard to Anne Marie Ellen Woods' disappearance can be prov- provided to Corvallis Police Department. Any information about Stephanie Ann Newsom's disappearance. Um, our death can be provided to Salem Police Department. Ann's case is a little tangled up with Stephanie's case, but they were both young, innocent little girls who surely didn't deserve to be taken away from the people that loved them. It is important, even after all these years, that those families know the truth, know who to hold responsible, and in Ann's case, know where that little girl is, is so that she can finally be laid to rest. Is it just me, or do some of the cases I cover uh, seem heavier than others? I know they're all bad, but some weigh on me a lot more than the rest. Hopefully this case is a little lighter. Uh, Just quickly reading over the, the next case, I just felt like it would fit into a horror movie about a monster in the woods. I think you'll see what I mean. This is the case of Robert Michael Bobo. And can I just say I love the last name? Robert is a white male with blonde hair and blue eyes. From the picture from the pictures it looks like his hair was more brown or dirty blonde. He was born on december seventh of nineteen sixty one. He was thirty six at the time of his disappearance, and he would be fifty eight now. He stood at five foot seven and weighed one hundred and forty five pounds. He was last seen wearing a flannel shirt and blue jeans. The color. <clears throat> The color of his shirt is not provided. He has a tattoo of his nickname Bob on his right bicep. He also has surgical scars, uh, a surgical scar below his navel, and a scar on his lower lip. So, Bob Bobo was a part time woodcutter, and from what I've read, it seems as though Bob lived a transient lifestyle from time to time. In 1998, Bob was living alone at a campsite in a remote, heavily wooded area in the Rogue River National Forest. The area is between Prospect and Union Creek, Oregon. He had been living alone at Woodruff Meadow for a few weeks. On the evening of October 2, 1998, Bob had dinner and drinks with friends in Prospect. He bummed a ride with a female friend after dinner. He didn't have a vehicle so he asked her to bring him to his camp she dropped him off at his campsite in the woodruff meadow area near 700 road the two hunters in the area saw her dropping him off at around 9 p.m and they were the last people to see bob on the morning of october 3rd the following morning one of bob's friends showed up to the camp to pick bob up for the opening day of hunting season he was surprised when Bob wasn't at the campsite. He contacted authorities and reported Bob missing at that time. Bob left behind all of his belongings, including his favorite black tape cap, uh, baseball cap, tape cat baseball cap, uh, two rifles, all his clothes, and his camping gear. He is not. Uh, he is not believed to have any, believed to have any money with him at the time of his disappearance. Numerous searches were conducted in the area around Bob's campsite, but no evidence was uncovered. Authorities state, stated that there was no indication of foul play, but they do not believe Bob left on his own accord. So Bob's brother, Dennis, traveled to the area regularly after Bob's disappearance to look for his brother. Dennis believes that the fact that Bob left behind his baseball cap is all the proof that somebody um, killed his brother. He said that when Bob woke up in the morning, before he even went to the bathroom, he put his hat on. Dennis said Bob was very self-conscious about his receiving hairline and he never went anywhere without his cap. Authorities believe that Bob may have been out in the woods, possibly scouting another campsite and became injured and unable to get help or get back to the camp. I think most everyone agrees that Bob knew the area too well to get lost in the woods. The other possibility is that Bob was attacked by a wild animal, but the problem with that theory, just like with the foul play theory, is that there is no evidence anywhere in that area To suggest that that is what occurred truthfully there is no evidence to suggest anything actually uh, it's just like Bob was abducted by aliens in the middle of the night now if you believe in aliens I'm not knocking your theory it could have happened so Bob Bobo is still missing and is not believed uh, and it is not believed that he decided to walk away most people believe that bob's remains are somewhere in the woods yet to be recovered but if you know anything about the disappearance of robert michael bobo you can contact the jackson county sheriff's office in oregon and let them know what you know i'm sorry that i sound a little different from case to case i had a coughing fit uh between the first and the second case so my throat's a little messed up now but anyway i'm gonna try and make it through without sounding too bad this next case is another juvenile case this is the disappearance of Rashonda Lee Pickle Rashonda is case number 146DFOR in the Doe Network and case number MP6529 in NamUs and her NAC number is 745119 Rashonda is a white female born on March 15th of 1977 She was 13 at the time of her disappearance and she would be 43 now. She has brown hair and brown eyes. She was 4 foot 7 and 90 pounds when she disappeared. Roshonda has a scar on her forehead, her ears are double pierced and her nickname is Channy. She was last seen wearing pajamas or black sweatpants, a white t-shirt, sneakers and silver stud earrings. In, 1999, um, sorry, in 1990, Channy was living with her family in a home on the uh, Santian, Santium Pass in Sweet Home, Oregon. On the morning of July 10th, Channy was awake early to help her mom get ready for the day. She French braided her mom's hair, then settled on the couch to watch cartoons in her pajamas. Linda and John Ackroyd left for work. Uh, Linda, uh, Channy's mother, is a housekeeper at Black Butt Ranch, a resort community about 30 minutes away. And he, John, her stepfather, is a, a highway mechanic. They weren't expected back until afternoon that day. Channy's mom uh left behind a short list of chores for Channy to do. Uh, load the dishwasher, vacuum the house take hot dogs out of the freezer later that morning at around 10am the door to the house opened unexpectedly John was home according to, I'm going to call him Ackroyd from this point forward according to Ackroyd he had dropped off Linda at the resort and continued to the state maintenance shop in Bend where he worked he had planned to fix snow plows that day, but decided to take the day off after learning that the parts he needed hadn't arrived. This baffled Ackroyd's supervisor because he said that there was plenty of work to keep Ackroyd busy. Ackroyd said he got home, uh, he found his stepdaughter under a blanket on the couch, the television was on, and the family kittens were curled up on her lap. He invited her to join him on a drive to photograph Deer on back roads near the junction. Chaney declined, saying that she had chores that her mother expected her to finish. Ackroyd said he'd been left. He returned to the house about 1245 to discover that Chaney was gone. Ackroyd wasn't concerned, though. He later went and picked up Linda from work. When the couple arrived home that evening, Chaney wasn't uh, hanging around outside like she had been the day before. The house didn't look out of place. Chaney's green nightgown was on her bedroom floor. Linda noticed that the girl's hairbrush, makeup, and earrings were all still there. The dishes weren't in the dishwasher and the floor hadn't been vacuumed. Chaney was pretty good about leaving notes if she headed out to play Nintendo at a neighbor's house or something like that, but she hadn't left a note. But Linda wasn't too concerned because Chaney often slept, often spent the night at her uh, friend's houses. The couple ate and that night they had sex. This was significant because they were almost never intimate. Ackroyd's low libido was a source of such open conflict that Linda's teenage son uh, Cheney's brother Byron knew of their troubles Linda asked Ackroyd where <clears throat> Chaney was that night he said he didn't know and Linda thought he should because he had been at home during the day Ackroyd told Linda to wait until the next day to call the police the next morning she calls 911 <clears throat> Linda was calm when she called and told the dispatcher that her daughter was missing the dispatcher asked why she had waited so long to report her her daughter missing and Linda told her that she thought she had to wait 24 hours. The dispatcher told her that that was uh, a mistake because you don't have to wait 24 hours when it comes to chil- children. The dispatcher then asked who was the last person to see Cheney. Matter of factly, Linda told the dispatcher her stepdad. Officers launched a massive search for Cheney. More than one hundred officers from seven counties combed the area from the Santium Junction to Big Lake. Cheney was never found. For years Aykroyd was the prime suspect in Cheney's case, and her family believed that he had murdered her. He didn't seem upset that Chaney was missing, and the police were suspicious because he knew her weight and her bra size, but not her birthday. Prior to her disappearance Chaney and her brother regularly went to school with bruises and Chaney told her friends that Ackroyd had caused the injuries. She was afraid to go home from school and that is why she often spent the night at her friends houses. After Chaney's disappearance Linda and Ackroyd separated. Linda moved to California and later remarried. In 1992 Ackroyd was sentenced to five life terms in prison for the unrelated murder of K. Jean Turner. She had been abducted and murdered in 1978, years before Cheney's disappearance. Ackroyd found Turner's body eight months after her abduction and was under suspicion in her case for many years. Evidence uh, connected Ackroyd to Turner's abduction and murder. I'm sorry. <clears throat> I mean, evidence connecting... Aykroyd to Turner's abduction and murder was found when police were looking for Cheney uh, after her disappearance. Aykroyd wasn't convicted in Turner's death until 1994. Another man was also convicted in Turner's death along with Aykroyd. In April of 2013, a huge break comes in Cheney's case. That is when Aykroyd was charged with her murder. Authority stated current technology made it possible to test old evidence and come up with information necessary to make the case against Ackroyd. Thank goodness for advances in DNA technology, right? Aykroyd is also a suspect in the deaths of two other young women, believe it or not. So, in autumn of thirteen, Aykroyd reached a plea deal with prosecutors in Cheney's death. He pleaded no contest in her in her death and agreed to, and agreed not to seek parole for Turner's murder, and to decline release even he even if he became eligible. The plea deal was immediately sealed at Ackroyd's request, and the terms didn't become public until March of 2007. By then, Ackroyd was no longer around; he had died in prison in late 2016. He refused to disclose the location of Cheney's body, and his plea stupidly didn't require him to. Um, so, uh, of course, foul play is suspected in Cheney's death, and Aykroyd is believed to be her murderer, but her body still has never been found. I think the majority of people would, uh, would read or listen about this case and would agree that Aykroyd did something to Cheney i'm gonna I'm gonna throw another theory out into the universe. Uh, it's probably inaccurate, but let's just see how, what you think about it. So let's say Cheney was being abused by Aykroyd in more ways than one. What if he did come home at ten that morning and sexually abused Cheney yet again? Then he left. Cheney had enough. Her mother wasn't helping, Aykroyd wasn't going to stop, and she wasn't going to deal with it anymore. What if she walked away? What if she just left and stepped away from the household that was destroying her inside? And now, maybe a 43-year-old woman, Chaney, who changed her name, is out in the world living her best life. I want so badly to believe that that theory is true, but I realize it is highly unlikely. Lynn County Sheriff's Office is the investigating agency, so any information about Rashonda Lee Pickle can be provided to them. I really do hope that she is still alive, although it is very doubtful. So that uh, was another very heavy case. I'm gonna take a break um, to breathe a little bit and hopefully get my voice back to normal. I'll be back after this ad to tell you about the last two cases for this week. Okay, so let's get into the next case. This is the case of Catherine Scott Eggleston. She is case number 1954DFOR in the Doe Network and case number MP11763 in NamUs. Most of the information I'll tell you is from her Wikipedia page. Catherine is a white female born on May 4th of 1971. She was 22 at the time of her disappearance, and she would be uh, 48 now. She stood at 5 foot 4 and 125 pounds. She has blonde hair and blue eyes. Her ears are pierced, and she goes by the nickname Katie. She was last seen wearing a purple blazer, a, a white blouse, a black skirt, stockings, and black pumps. Katie was born in Redmond, Oregon, to Paul and Heather Eggleston. Paul was a former Seattle high school teacher and superintendent of Redmond School District in Redmond, Oregon, and Heather was an elementary school teacher. Katie was one of Paul and Heather's four daughters. The girls were raised in Redmond. After graduating high school, Katie attended Oregon State University in Corvallis where she was a member of the Alpha Chi Omega sorority. She graduated from college in the spring of 1993, where she had earned a Bachelor's of Arts degree in English. After graduating from college, Eggleston relocated to Gresham, Oregon, which is a suburb of Portland. There she lived with her older sister, Janet. Katie took a job working for Allnet Communication Communications Services, which is a telecommunications company based in Lake Oswego. Uh, she was working as a salesperson there. On August 2nd of 1993, she went to work to start her first day alone on the job. That morning, she left the office in Lake Oswego to head uh, to a meeting in Portland. After her meeting, she stopped at several businesses along- on Northeast uh, Whitaker. Way to make sales. She then stopped at a bank and gasoline station before she stopped at a Burger King restaurant near Lloyd Center to eat lunch. After her lunch break, Katie arrived at the 700 building, which was the port of Portland building located at 700 Northeast uh, Multnomah Street for a meeting. This was approximately two blocks from the Lloyd Center where she had eaten lunch, had ate lunch. <clears throat> she was seen making phone calls in the lobby, and five separate individuals who saw her stated that she appeared preoccupied and worried. At about 2.15 p.m., the man with whom Katie had the appointment with witnessed her exiting an elevator in the lobby with a man wearing a blue blazer. The client described the unknown man as having dark hair and a dark complexion. This was the last time Katie was actually seen. Katie had a meeting at five that afternoon at the Allnet office where she was uh, supposed to meet her advisor, but Katie never showed up. At the same time, a witness named uh, named John Davis saw Katie's gray Volkswagen Golf still in the parking lot of Portland building in the, um, in the parking lot garage area. Um, when Katie didn't arrive home that evening, her sister Janet called their dad. Paul drove from Redmond to Portland on August 3rd that, that following day. In the early morning hours of August 3rd, a security guard at the industrial complex located at Northeast 122nd Avenue and Airport Way discovered Katie's car parked in the lot. This was about nine miles from the Port of Portland building where she was last seen. This was also near the Portland International Airport. Doors to the car were unlocked and all of its windows were rolled down and the keys to the car were still in the ignition her purse and its contents were in the car, including a checkbook, credit cards, and a small amount of cash. The only things that appeared to be missing from her car were her passport and her net sales binder. Katie's parents noted that she had retrieved her passport from their house in Redmond while she was visiting about 10 days earlier. On August 6th, Um, fields located nearby were searched by volunteer searchers, as well as other underbrush gravel roads and farmlands. Katie's employer, Allnet, paid for additional air searches, which were followed with ground searches using bloodhounds. On August 6th, a Portland police spokesperson told reporters that it certainly looks like we might have a homicide. Initially, Katie's parents suspected her then-boyfriend for her disappearance. He was cleared, though, by law enforcement um, because they confirmed that he had been in Central Oregon at the time of Katie's disappearance. So initially, it was believed that Katie was a victim of homicide. But then the Portland Police uh, Bureau subsequently theorized that Katie had gone missing intentionally. They thought that she had been trying to avoid testifying in a potential court case against her sister, Janet, for tax evasion. Janet and her former husband were accused of failing to report around $190,000 in business income between 1986 and 1987. When this was realized, police focused their attention on this theory as a potential motive for Katie to uh, flee. Because of the refocus of the investigation, uh, there was some disagreement between Katie's family and the investigators. Terry Wagner was the lead investigator in Katie's case. Paul Eggleston later stated, "...Wagner made it crystal clear she was not going to talk with us, that she still believed Katie probably disappeared of her own will." Quite frankly... I would be a little upset, too, if an investigator wouldn't even talk to me about my missing child. Um, So because of the issues, Katie's family hired a retired Oregon State Police Detective to further investigate Katie's case. After that, several leads were produced. One of those leads was in regard to a security guard who possessed keys to the Port of Portland building's parking garage. Um, to further the search efforts and in, an investigation, LNET funded a, hot t- a tip hotline dedicated to tips in Katie's disappearance. Uh, flyers promising a $5,000 reward were also distributed along Interstate 5 between Eugene and Everett, Washington in mid-August. One anonymous call placed to the tip hotline was made by a man who claimed to have abducted Katie and murdered her two weeks after her disappearance. The anonymous caller, who allegedly spoke with a Southern dialect, stated that she would never be found because, quote, I killed her, end quote. In October of 1993, police had received hundreds of tips in the case, but none proved fruitful. On October 12th, law enforcement told the media that They maintained their stance that Katie had disappeared willingly, citing the lack of physical evidence as well as Katie's missing passport. They again suggested that she had fled to avoid testifying against her sister. Here is the thing about that theory, though. Um, Janet and her ex-husband, Jeffrey Taylor, had both pleaded guilty to their charges on July 9th uh, foregoing a trial that meant that Katie would not have been compelled to testify at all anyway. That guilty plea was also entered about a month before Katie went missing, so she would have known that she wouldn't have had to testify after her uh after Janet's October twelfth sentencing over the tax evasion. Um, she told Janet told the media that her case was unrelated to her sister's disappearance, commenting, "Quote, to imply any connection tarnishes her in a way that is unbelievably painful to me." End quote. Katie's father Paul commented in letters, cor- uh, letter correspondence to investigators, "Quote, Katie may be a, a government witness, but her con- her contribution to the case has to be minimal." She doesn't know any more than Sarah about Jeff's finances, end quote. So Sarah is Katie's younger sister, and she was also a potential witness in the tax evasion case. Now let's fast forward to 2001. On May 4th of that year, Katie's 30th birthday, her family set up a hotline seeking additional tips uh, in regards to her disappearance one man who called was a former attendant at a gasoline station located at Northeast 122nd Avenue and Stark Street. He claimed to have seen Katie near the time of her disappearance. So this gas station is located approximately four miles south of where Katie's car was found. The attendant claimed to have uh, given a woman he believed to be Katie directions to the airport. According to the attendant, She departed in a vehicle, but he couldn't remember the make or model of it. A short time later, he said the woman returned to the gas station. This time, she was in a different car, a uh, blue-greenish-colored Honda hatchback, and she was accompanied by two black men. According to the attendant, the woman appeared disheveled, partially undressed, and crying, and seemed to be doing things to attract attention, such as driving erratically. The attendant also noted that when the woman had first arrived alone, he noted he noticed a black, a thick black book on the passenger seat of her car. The thick black book could have very well been the sales binder used by Almet. So law enforcement continued to take the stand that Katie had willingly disappeared of her own accord. That is until 2004. In 2004, Brooke oh, Wilberger disappeared from Corvallis, Oregon. Brooke Wilberger's abduction was eventually uh, abductor was identi- uh, uh, I'm sorry. Brooke Wilberger's abductor was eventually identified as Joel Patrick Courtney. He had a long history of criminal offenses, substance abuse, and possible mental illness. In September two thousand nine, Courtney pleaded guilty to the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Brooke Wilmberg and led authorities to her her body. Courtney has traveled uh, extensively throughout his life. He is known to have been in Alaska, Florida, Arizona and Mexico in addition to Oregon and New Mexico. Authorities believe he had harmed other women besides Wilberger and Katie is considered a possible victim of Courtney. Katie had just graduated from college and Brooke uh, Wilberger was a college sophomore. Both women had blonde hair and blue eyes, and they were uh, about. They were close to the same age. Brooke Wilberger was 19 uh, when she disappeared, which was only three years younger than Katie. It should it should be emphasized that as of yet there is no solid evidence to tie Courtney to Katie's disappearance and death. So let's talk about uh, this for a minute. I don't believe. Uh, Katie left on her own and I'll tell you why I think that is. She had just started that job. She had just graduated college, college. She loved her family and she was close to them. She had no history of mental illness and the only thing going on in her life that may have been a reason to run away was dealt with weeks before she had disappeared. She had a bright future ahead of her filled with the potential So I don't see what her motivation would have been to run away. Um, Do I think Joel Courtney killed her? Ah, I don't know. There is nothing tying them together that we know about. Brooke and Katie were similar and maybe Courtney had a type. I I don't know. I won't rule it out, but I am far more curious about the tip line calls. Uh, The call where the male with the southern dialect confessed to killing Katie. Does Joel Courtney have a southern dialect? And what other kind of details were provided during that call? Now, the gas station attendant. If police were able to find him and rule him out as a possible suspect, I don't have a problem believing what he said. I do have some issues with his story, though. The first one being that he didn't Remember what make or model of the car the car was that he saw her in initially. I don't understand um, that I do understand that time has passed since our time had passed since he last saw it but I would expect him to at least remember the color because he remembered the second vehicle. Um, but I, I don't know. The other problem is that he was, uh, that this female believed to be Katie was disheveled and crying and trying to draw attention to herself. So, why didn't he do something? Um, why did something in his head not say, well, maybe I should call the cops and have them pay attention to her and the situation? There are some other things about the story that I don't like or understand, but I'll just leave it at that. I, one of those being that I don't understand why it took him so long to call in this tip but whatever I want you to be able to draw your own conclusion about that gas station attendant's story so Katie's mom Heather died in July of 2011 Katie's dad Paul followed in March of 2017 both of Katie's parents consistently maintain that their that to their death that their daughter had been murdered. Katie's whereabouts are still unknown, and her case, while cold, is still open. If you know anything about the disappearance of Catherine Scott Eggleston, please contact the Portland Police Bureau. Uh, The final case this week is the final juvenile case as well. This is the case of Jeremy Dolan Bright. Jeremy is case number 38 DMOR in the Doe Network, an MP 4961 in NamUs and his NCMEC number is 600424. Like Catherine, Jeremy also has a Wikipedia page which is where I got most of the information that I'll tell you about. There is also an episode of Unsolved Mysteries uh, featuring Jeremy's case. Jeremy is a white male born on May 25th of 1972. He was 14 at the time of his disappearance And he would be 47 now. Uh, He has brown hair and green eyes. He was a pretty big 14-year-old standing at 6 foot and weighing 140 pounds. Jeremy has a mole on his chin and scars on his forehead and nose. His feet are exceptionally large for his height. His shoe size is uh, size 13. Jeremy's left index finger was broken at the time of his disappearance. He was last seen wearing a black windbreaker jacket, a red tank top, blue nylon shorts, and black Nike sneakers with red laces. Uh, Jeremy was born in Baltimore, Maryland, but he grew up in Myrtle Point, Oregon, and lived there for most of his childhood with his younger sister, uh, Esty, his mother, Diane, Beattie, I think that's how you say it, and his father, Joe Flaherty he was popular at school and made some very close friends in Myrtle Point which sadly he he had to leave behind when his mother and father divorced years later at that point Jeremy and his sister moved in uh, moved to Grant Grant's pass with their mother all of his childhood friends still lived in Myrtle Point so Jeremy would go and see them in the summer when he had time off school, and he enjoyed visiting his old hometown. During the summer, uh, that Jeremy, during the summers that Jeremy would return to Myrtle Point, the Coos County Fair would be in town. Jeremy would often go to the fair with his friends and Estie uh, a couple of times during the week. The summer of August 1986, Jeremy and Esty headed to Myrtle Point like every year to reunite with their friends and family. Their mom stayed in Grants Pass and planned on picking them up in a few days. Jeremy's stepfather, Ollie, agreed to let Jeremy and Esty stay with him while they were in Myrtle uh, Myrtle Point that summer. On August 13th, Jeremy and his closest friend from Myrtle Point, Johnny Fish, attended the fair. At around 4:45 p.m., Jeremy called his mom from a payphone outside McKay's Market in Myrtle Point. They spoke about him and Esty being picked up on August 15th, and he let her know how much he was having, uh, how much fun he was having with Johnny. This would be the last time Diane would hear from her son. Fast forward to around 9:40 p.m., so nearly five hours after Jeremy had called his mom. He walked into a local tavern owned by his grandmother. Ollie, Jeremy's stepfather, was there also. Jeremy spoke with Ollie for a while and asked him if he could borrow some money so he could go back to the fair the next day. Ollie gladly handed Jeremy some money. This was the last time Ollie and Jeremy's grandmother would see Jeremy. The following day, Thursday, August 14th, Jeremy and Esty Headed to the fair. At around 2 p.m., Jeremy and Esty parted ways, agreeing to meet back up around 5, near the Ferris wheel. 5 p.m. rolls around, and Esty is standing near the Ferris wheel. She waits. She waits a little longer, and still a little longer. Jeremy never shows up. Esty thought that Jeremy had forgotten to pick her up, so she decided to walk back to her stepfather's house by herself. The following day, August 15th, Jeremy's mother arrived at his stepfather's house in Myrtle Point to pick Jeremy and Esty up. Inside the house, she found Jeremy's wallet, watch, and keys to their Grants Pass apartment. After Jeremy failed to surface that day, among any of the family members or friends, She contacted the authorities and reported him missing. Law enforcement initially suspected foul play in Jeremy's disappearance, but on August 23rd of 1986, less than one week after his disappearance, it was announced that they were no longer suspecting foul play due to the alleged sightings of Jeremy in the days after his disappearance. Some of those reports were as late as August 16th or 17th. Law enforcement believed that Jeremy had run away with the traveling carnival. Alternatively, several individuals, including Estee, had reported prior to this release that they had witnessed Jeremy being forcibly removed by a man near the fairground's Ferris wheel between 1 and 1.30 on the day he was last seen. Several rumors began to circulate about Jeremy's disappearance, One claimed that Jeremy, who had a heart murmur, had attended a party and ingested a beer laced with illegal drugs, which caused him to fatally overdose. Another rumor that was submitted by an anonymous tip through a prison inmate claimed that Jeremy had accidentally been shot to death by a group of quarrelsome men while he was with his friends at a local swimming hole around the uh, Coquille River. Another alternatively claimed that Jeremy had been accidentally shot during target practice. Allegedly, those responsible attempted to nurse Jeremy back to health at a remote cabin, but he succumbed to his wound. The tipster claimed his body had been buried in the woods in a shallow grave. Police, however, searched the aforementioned cabin and surrounding area and found nothing. Cecilia Fish, the sister of Jeremy's friend Johnny, told police that on the night of Jeremy's disappearance, she witnessed an unnamed male resident of her apartment building stumble inside the entryway, covered in blood. Some rumors suggest that the man that she saw, covered in blood, uh, was actually Jeremy, and not a resident of the apartment building. Numerous wells in Myrtle Point were also searched following Jeremy's disappearance, after an anonymous tip was submitted in mid-August of 1986, the tip stated Jeremy's body was in a in an aerial well. Another unfruitful tip was given to law enforcement, which suggested they follow a road to a concrete bit bridge in western Nebraska. Another tip was received, leading investigators to a young man named Jeremy Bright, who was working for a circus company in Florida, where many traveling circuses and carnivals relocated during winter months. The man was determined to be someone else from Colorado who just happened to share the same name. According to some accounts, Jeremy was last seen in the passenger seat of a truck owned by a young man named uh, Terry Lee Steinoff. Steinoff had babysat Jeremy at one point in time. In January of 1989, a week after the case was featured on Unsolved Mysteries, Steinoff was charged in the stabbing death of 32-year-old Patricia Morris. After that, police considered Steinoff a potential suspect in Jeremy's disappearance. Unfortunately, Steinoff died in prison in 2007 of a heroin overdose. Jeremy's family at some point began to presume that he was dead. After, after several years of looking for Jeremy, they finally decided to hold a formal memorial service in August of 2011 in his memory. Police haven't stopped investigating Jeremy's disappearance, though. In October 2016, a pond on private property approximately 25 miles from Myrtle Point was searched after a tip was received that Jeremy may have been disposed of there. The search, unfortunately, turned up nothing. Now, I'm as hopeful as anyone when it comes to the disappearances I talk about, and I would love to think that Jeremy ran away with the fair. I'll tell you why most of the people in Jeremy's life say that that just can't be the case. Apparently, Jeremy was not the kind of kid to leave and try to make it on his own. Secondly, he loved his sister, Esty, very much. She was nine when Jeremy disappeared, And he had a sense of responsibility for her, so he wouldn't have just left her. This is an odd case to me because there are so many rumors and sightings, but no evidence. There is nothing to say what may be true and what may be false. Maybe none of the rumors are 100% true, but instead, maybe the truth lies between them all. So Jeremy is still missing and police follow leads whenever they get something new. So if you know anything about the disappearance of Jeremy Dolan Bright, please contact the Coos County Sheriff's Office. So before we wrap things up, I do have a scene again for you this week, fitting in with this week's cases. It is a juvenile disappearance too. Uh, Samantha Sue Hicks was 14 years old, was a 14-year-old white female when she disappeared from Grants Pass, Oregon, on December 17th of 2010. Three years later, in January of 2014, Samantha was found safe and alive in Utah. She had run away back in 2010. Samantha was unaware that she was even listed as a missing person until she accidentally encountered her own missing child notice on the back of a pizza receipt. She called home. I'm sure she was eventually reunited with her mother. So that's it for this week. Uh, A lot of good cases came out of Oregon, Um, and I'm sorry that I was a little off this week for the episode. Um, It is that time now when I sound like an old broken record, though. As always, if you like this episode or this podcast in general, share it with your friends. Hell, you can even share it with your enemies, too. Uh, Like, favorite, rate, and or review if you can on whatever platform you listen on. If you are listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, be sure to go ahead and give me those five stars. The higher the podcast rates, the more listeners I get. And of course, the more, list, the more people that listen, uh, the more people that know about these cases. And then these missing have a better chance of getting home. Just a quick message to my Australian listeners. I see that you are listening and I fully appreciate it. I don't know how you stumbled upon this podcast, but I am so glad that you did. Now that I know you're here, please keep listening, because in the future I plan on working on an episode that I think you'll enjoy. So that's it for this week in our trip to Oregon. I hope you enjoyed it, and as always, I hope that you return next week to hear more about those never to be seen again.